0: Now let's wish to have them open at Romans chapter 5 As we seek to consider the second half of this chapter And seek to understand what God is saying Because there are some important things in this chapter Things which are, for some, hard to understand And yet, if we have the right concepts in our minds It is relatively straightforward Now just quickly to summarise where we have come from we have been studying Romans now for this is the thirteenth week and we have been looking to see what Paul has to say. He is writing to spell out to the Romans what his gospel is so that when he comes to visit them there will be no debates and no dispute. They will know and understand exactly what he's talking about. He uses it as an opportunity to dispel False ideas about him and about the gospel. We've seen how he begins his gospel in chapter one, and goes through to chapter three and verse twenty, expounding human sin, and he is showing very forcefully—you could almost say—he's got a sledgehammer. He's trying to crack over our heads repeatedly about the fact that the human race, you and I, are sinners and in desperate need of salvation, and yet in spite of the fact that we desperately need to be saved from our sins, yet there is nothing that we can do about it. And he takes 64 verses to labour this point, whether we're immoral, whether we're moral, whether we're religious, we're all lost in our sins. And then in the six verses that follow, he gives us the gospel. Our sins are dealt with and we are made right with God on the basis of what Jesus Christ did by his life and his death in purchasing for us a perfect righteousness and in being punished for our sins on our behalf. And so now if we wish to be saved all we have to do is to trust in Jesus Christ, his person and his work and then God will credit that to us as righteousness by His grace we must remember it is by the grace of God we are saved and it is faith which is the instrument that God uses, it's not that there's anything special about our faith it is that God uses our faith that it's God in His grace who saves us from our sins (coughs) the objection would then be raised by some that well, it wasn't like this in the Old Testament you've changed things, you've added something you've thrown away the Old Testament and Paul in chapter 4 shows that that is not the case at all by looking at Abraham in particular and mentioning David in passing he shows that the Old Testament was just the same Abraham and David were made right with God on the basis of God's grace through their belief in God's grace and so this is not of odds with the Old Testament, it's exactly what the Old Testament says. We then began to look two weeks ago at the fruit of the right with God, the results of justification by faith. And we saw first of all there were subjective results in that we have peace with God and we rejoice in the hope of sharing God's glory. It has an effect upon the way in which we look at life, and even in tribulation we can rejoice in because we know that God has forgiven us. And we know that. Our hope is not an illusion that disappoints us, but it's a certainty because when we were converted, God poured out his love in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And all those who know the Lord Jesus Christ know their sins forgiven, and know the love of God poured into their hearts at that first time when they believed, and subsequently... And so Christians can say, yes, there was a time, there was a date, there was an hour, a minute, indeed a second, when I first believed in Jesus Christ. And at that moment, God responded to my faith and he poured out into my heart the Holy Spirit and communicated to me his love. We then saw last week the objective side of God's love towards us, And Paul says, well, look at it like this. We were God's enemies. We were ungodly. We were wicked people. And when we were like that, God sent Christ to die for us. But now we've been made right with God. Now we stand before God as perfect people in his sight. What's God going to do for us now? That's what he did for us when we were his enemies. Just think what God is going to do for us now that we're his friends. And there is a definiteness, a certainty if we have trusted in Jesus Christ we will arrive safely in glory. It is certain. The fourth thing we must ask is have we been converted in the first place? Well, we now proceed into verses 12 to 21 to the end of the chapter in chapter 5 and seek to discover what Paul is saying here and because of the way he's been speaking some people would raise a question remember I said Paul writes in such a way that he'll stimulate questions in people's minds and the question simulated would be this everything you've said Paul centres around this one man Jesus Christ But how come what one man has done, affects so many people? Surely there will come a time, as you're preaching the Gospel, that the efficacy of Christ's life and death will run out. And then it won't be any more point preaching the Gospel because no more people can be saved. That pool of righteousness that was purchased by Christ will have run out. There are people that have such thoughts in their heads, even today. And so Paul is now going on to show how it is that one man, Jesus Christ, can save a vast multitude. And here also we need to be reminded of one of the quirks, you might call it, of Paul's style in writing. He begins to say something and then he thinks, Ah, they won't understand this, I'd better explain it to them. And that's what we have in uh, this section. That's why verse 13 seems to not flow at all from verse 12. Because this is the beginning of a parenthesis. Indeed, some Bibles have it as a parenthesis. So, in Paul's mind, this is what went on. And he speaks, and he says, uh, dictating, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sins things are. Ah. Now, they won't understand this. I'd better explain it to them. Right. For until all the law, sin was in the world. And so he's on his digression explaining this point so they'll understand what he's talking about. And that digression takes us down to and includes verse 17. And then he comes back to his main thought again in verse 18. And says again, and you'll notice its similarity with verse 12. Therefore, as through one man's offence, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. So, let's look at this. We're going to look at this in terms of two men, two acts, and two results. First of all, I want to point out one very important thing in verse 12. And that is, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin. Until Adam sinned, there was no death in this world. And this shows us how totally incompatible any idea of evolution and the Bible are. People try and say, oh, but evolution really tells us the how and the Bible tells us the why. Don't believe it. It's people trying to be dishonest with the scriptures. And what they're doing is to make their science, if it can be called that, their God. And in the light of what their God says, they make the Bible say what they want it to say. Rather than saying, this is the word of God, and I don't care what the scientists say, the Bible tells me scientists are ungodly, wicked people who are God's enemies. So we should not be surprised if in what they say, they speak things that are against God and his word. The Bible's clear. There was no death in the world until Adam seed. And yet evolutionists would have thousands, millions of years of death and slaughter until eventually you arrived at a sentient human being, someone who understood as we understand. But Paul's not dealing with that point here, I just mention that in passing. He's drawing a contrast between these two men, the two men being Adam and Jesus Christ. So verse 12 we have Adam mentioned, not by name but it's obvious uh, from what follows, that he's speaking about Adam. Verse 14, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam, uh, who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam. So, he's talking about one man here on one side, Adam, and on the other side, he's talking about another man, Jesus Christ, Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. Verse 15, we read about uh, the free grace of the one man, Jesus Christ. So, we've got the two men. But Adam we've got Christ and these two men did two different things now note it's not the things that they did it is the thing that they did it's the singular so it's not that Adam was a sinner and sinned all through his life it is the one thing that he did in disobeying God in eating the fruit of the truth not the fruit of the tree not the apple the fruit of the tree and it's the one act of righteousness that Jesus Christ did in submitting to death on the cross so it's two men Adam and Jesus Christ and it's two acts not a multitude of acts that which can be divided into two sides two acts the rebellion and the wickedness and the sin of Adam and the obedience the righteousness of Jesus Christ and that's what you get all the way through this you get these contrasts between the two men and the two things that they did and the two results now what's the point of this? why is Paul speaking like this? well we need to do what Paul's done and we need to have a slight digression in order to understand the concept that he's using. We need to understand the Jewish concept of solidarity. Now, I'm not talking about a Polish trade union. I'm not talking about trade unionism at all. Although they have a concept, which is a biblical concept. Although they perhaps wouldn't wish to acknowledge that. Turn back, if you will, into the Old Testament to Joshua. Joshua and chapter 7. The previous chapter, chapter 6, the people of Israel have walked around Jericho and the walls have fallen down and they've gone in and captured the city and killed all the inhabitants apart from Rahab and her family as had been promised. And Rahab became one of the ancestors of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they were commanded to do something. They were commanded, you will utterly destroy this city and all its inhabitants because this was God's victory and so all the spoil was God's and also many of the things in the city, many of the gold and silver objects were idols and so they were to be destroyed but what do we find did the people of Israel fully obey God? Verse... I'm sorry, chapter 7 and verse 1. But the children of Israel committed a trespass regarding the accursed things. Right? Now no, notice this. The children of Israel, all of them, committed a sin for Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed things so that the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel and you'd read that in just a minute why is God angry with all of them when it's just one man who's done something wrong and you see here you have the one man standing for the many the one man Achan stood for a whole nation and because he had sinned in God's eyes the whole nation sinned and you can read on about the disaster that befell them because they they had sinned in the sight of God therefore when they went up to defeat the city of Ai they were defeated and uh, Joshua falls on his face and cries out to God and says why? verse 10 the Lord said to Joshua get up Why do you lie on your face? Why are you praying? You shouldn't be praying at a time like this, you've got something to sort out. And God spells out what the problem is. They find out exactly who it is and he's dealt with, with his family. But the concept is this, one man standing as a representative for the whole nation. Now we have that at the moment. What do you think about the European community? What do you think about Maastricht? Do you think it's a good thing? Do you think it's a bad thing? Well, it doesn't really matter what you think, because John Major has decided that we're going to sign the Maastricht Treaty and we're going to have closer ties with Europe. He might have reservations. He might have reservations. He's trying to sort that out in the negotiations. The Danes have had second thoughts as well. They've got things sorted out. It would seem. But the point is, this one man stands as a representative for Great Britain. If you were to go to another country, if you were to go for example to the United States, you would probably find that if you went along to a cocktail party in polite society in New York City, that you would be cornered by various people and you would be harangued about the policies of the British government in Northern Ireland. You say, "This has got nothing to do with me, but you're British, and your government is doing this. Here's one man or one group of men standing for the whole nation. You go to Iraq, and you would probably find you would be rather badly mistreated, because look what your government has done. Against this people. has nothing to do with me. I didn't have anything to do with it. I didn't agree that they should go. No. Well, I'm not at fault. I didn't pull the trigger. I didn't give the orders. Not my fault. Don't blame me. You're British. There's this concept of solidarity. We have it today, but we just don't think in those terms. We think individualistically. But the Jews didn't think like that, and the Bible's a Jewish book. We've got to understand these things if we're going to understand any of the Bible. Our problem is that most of the dominant philosophy in our culture which affects us, we might not think about, well, philosophy, what's that? Nonetheless, we have it in our
1: minds.
0: And it comes from ancient Greece. Not much of it comes from the Bible. And we need to immerse our minds repeatedly in the Bible so that our minds are marinated by God's truth. And then perhaps we'll start thinking more biblically. And this is one of those things where we tend to take the Greek ideas rather than the Bible's ideas. So we need to think in terms of solidarity. And what Paul's saying here is, here we have one man Adam. And that one man Adam stands at the head of the human race. And he represents the whole human race. Everybody who has been born since and will be born and God views the whole human race through that one man and so when that one man sinned the whole race sinned God looks down at us through Adam and what God sees is sin and we're all sinners And we say, but I wouldn't have done what Adam did. Doesn't matter. You probably would. But even if you, if, even if you didn't, it doesn't matter. Because of this concept of solidarity, we are in Adam and we are united to Adam. And whatever Adam did as our representative falls upon us. And so therefore, whether we like it or not, we're sinners. And we are born that way. Because when Adam produced offspring, he produced them after his image and his likeness, which was that of the sinner. And that's why uh, Paul says here, Therefore, verse 12, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sin and what he's saying there is that we sinned in Adam that we were there with Adam when he made that fateful decision and so credited to our account the technical word is imputed we even use it today we impute motives to people we see someone doing something say oh you're doing that because of this and we impute a motive to them we credit it to them we say this is the reason we're doing that Well, what Adam has done is imputed to us. It's credited to us. Although I'm not sure that you could call sin being a credit. But on the other side, you have Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, one man, committed this one act of righteousness. Well, for those who are connected to him, then things are different God has looked down to Adam at the human race and they're all sinners God looks down at those who are in Christ and he sees righteousness and life now I've tried to express this on a couple of uh, charts on the overhead projector now these this is one of the concepts we have to grasp We have the two circles, the larger one are all those who are in Adam, and that is the whole human race. But there are some who through repentance and faith believe in Christ, and they move into the smaller circle, and they are then in Christ. Now there is an important point here, which we will come to shortly. Because of the way the, word, the, the way in which Paul uses the word all, but we have here the larger circle all in Adam, and the smaller circle those in Christ. All right, can we have the other one back, right, please? And we now have a chart showing the two men and the consequences as God sees them. I can't quite see all of it, so we're going to have to move it up as we go down. Right, God views the human race through these two men. And on the right hand side we have Christ and on the left hand side Adam. And we have their two acts. Sin for Adam and obedience for Jesus Christ. The result condemnation for those in Adam, righteousness for those in Christ. And that leads for those in Adam to death by which we mean hell. And for those in Christ it is life. Meaning eternal life in glory. has yeah, been just move, move it up? The question is how do we get from one side to the other? The only way to get from one side to the other is through salvation. It comes about by God regenerating us, changing our hearts within, that we repent, that is we convert, the process of conversion. And that we then know God's grace through faith in Christ. That's how we get from one side to the other. That's how we move from being in Adam to being in Christ. So we've looked now at the two men, the two acts, and the two results. And we've seen how it's a question of solidarity. Are we in Adam? Well, we all are by nature. That's how we're born. Some of us are in Christ. Who are we united to? This is the question. And if we're in Adam, Adam's sin is imputed to us. And Paul now spells this out and tries to explain this in more detail. We partake of Adam's one sin, we're in him, we inherit it. And so we are born as sinners and we're born condemned for Adamson, the moment that a child pops out of the womb, that child is guilty of sin. So whenever you hear people talking about innocent newborn babies, you know that it's sentimental eyewash. It's not true. There is no such thing as an innocent child. The child, the moment it enters the world, is guilty of Adam's sin Paul spells it out verse 14 sorry we'll go from verse 13 first for until the law sin was in the world but sin is not imputed where there is no law no law was given so therefore since people couldn't break the law well how could they die death is a punishment for sin but if there's no sin because there's no law to break and how is it all these people died? Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. Why is it that until the law was given, there was death? Everybody died. We have the exception of Enoch, of course, but everybody else died. Why? The reason is because every man and every woman born into the world is guilty of Adam's sin. Death spread to all men because all sin, All sin, in Adam. So therefore, we need to be aware of this. It's important. It affects the way we regard little children. Those of you that have got children will know that they're not little angels. You'll know that from the moment they're born, they're little sinners. They might look nice and cuddly and gurgle and look sweet. When people come along and say, Oh, isn't she Isn't she beautiful? They probably are. But you know what they're like at three o'clock in the morning when they are demanding that they get fed and have some attention. And that's an expression of sin. So the reason why there are such things as babies who die in infancy is because of Adam's sin. It's imputed to them and they are guilty. Now, this doesn't deal with what happens to them eternally. Paul's not dealing with that here. In fact, you won't find that dealt with anywhere in the Bible because it's of no practical use to us at all. But Paul is explaining why there is death even where there's no law. And you could also argue that men have the law written on their hearts and they're singing against that as well. But all men without exception, die because of the sin of Adam.
1: Their own sins as well,
0: but also because of the sin of Adam. So Adam's one sin, the one sin, has condemned all men because that one sin has been imputed to all his offspring. Okay, what was the question we started with? How is it what one man has done affects so many and won't run out one day? And is really the answer is, don't be silly. Look at Adam. And he's affected the whole race. And Christ affects those who believe in him in the same way. His benefits, his merits, are imputed to those who believe. So it's not that Jesus Christ had to be righteous to a certain degree in order to Get a certain vat, a certain size, full of merits, which he could dispense. And when the vat runs out, then sorry, there's no more. It's an imputation. It's a crediting of his righteousness. It's not. Don't think in terms of that, because otherwise you've got to do the same with Adam's sin. How many sins did Adam commit in order to condemn the world? One. So Christ's one act of righteousness is fully sufficient for all who believe. There is great comfort and consolation. We can never say, oh, but I can't come to Christ because he won't accept me because all his merits run out. Not at all. There is more than sufficient merit because it's imputed. and Christ saves all those who are thus united to him by faith. Now it's important to understand this concept of being in him. Remember the two circles. Because of the way that Paul uses the word all. He uses it several times in this passage. Also he uses it in 1 Corinthians 15. Let's look at that first. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 22. He's talking about overcoming death in the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. And in verse 20 he says, But now Christ has risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man, Adam, came death, by man, Christ, also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even even so in Christ shall all be made alive. There you are, people say, see I believe the Bible everybody's going to be saved doesn't that isn't that what it says everyone's going to be saved as in Adam all die so in Christ all will be made alive you ever read a book by William Barclay a very famous man he's written some books that are quite helpful but unfortunately William Barclay was an unbeliever he was a wicked man that denied much of what the Bible says and this is one aspect where he denied the teaching of the Bible now he would say but I'm believing the Bible is distorting it. If we go to verses like this as all universalists do really and say everyone's going to be saved in the end they just need to, to know about it. And the whole point of evangelism they say is to, to encourage people and to help them to see that they're all saved really. Adolf Hitler, Saddam Hussein, Genghis Khan and you. you are all saved because Christ has saved everyone. That's what it says. No it doesn't. Completely wrong. As in Adam all died. So, in Christ will all be made alive. Paul is drawing a distinction between those in Adam and those in Christ. It's only those who are in Christ who will be made alive. And we need to be aware of this when Paul uses apparently all inclusive words. So, when he says all, what's the context? Does he mean everybody, those in Adam, or does he just mean those in Christ? And we find restrictions placed upon the word all in the contexts where the word is used. And so we have, for example, um, in verse 19, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's uh, obedience many will be made righteous. Now there's not an Equivalence between those two parts of the sentence. The many who are made um, disobedient, the many who are made sinners by Adam, is everybody. But the many who are made righteous are those who are in Christ. Vital to understand that, that difference between the two. So we've had the two men, Adam and Christ, the two acts, obedience and disobedience. The two results, condemnation and life. A free gift. Notice it's a free gift. God's free grace comes to us. He didn't have to do it. He did it out of free grace. But then at the end of the chapter, verse 20 and 21, he mentions the role of the law. Now I've written a, recently written uh, a lengthy response to someone in America, uh, who left a message on a computer saying that God made the law easy so that we can all keep it and he was saying essentially it's the same in the New Testament that we are saved by keeping the law so I have written him a lengthy response pointing out that what he's advocating is not Christianity it's not biblical it's not Old Testament either Because the whole function of the law, as we've seen, was not to bring salvation. It was to bring an awareness of sin, and that's what Paul says again here. Okay, so we had the period, Adam to Moses, people died because of Adam's sin, and yet (coughs) there was no law. Why was the law given? Verse 20, moreover the law entered that the offence might abound. The whole reason the law was given to make men more sinful, to make men commit more acts of sin. Now, just think about this. If you're walking through a park, you will tend to keep to the footpath. But you might one day be walking through that same park and you see that they decide to put up some notices. And all over the place, dotted around, there are these signs saying, Do not walk on the grass and what do you immediately want to do you look around is there anyone watching and then you step on the grass who are they to tell me I can't walk on the grass, you do it and it shows your sinful nature because you will not obey the law You decide that you know best and you're not going to be told by anyone else what to do. So the law's effect upon us is not to help us to keep it. The law's effect is to help us to sin. God doesn't want us to sin but that's the effect of telling us what to do. the same with children, isn't it? Do this. No, I won't. Yes, you will. No, I won't there's a story told by R.T. Kendall about him and his son and he says to his son Robert Tillman III sit down no sit down no sit down no if you don't sit down I will wallop you so hard you won't be able to sit down so he sat down and he said I'm sitting down on the outside but I'm standing up on the inside. Children are like that, aren't they? So are we. We were children once. And that's the effect of law upon us. To do the very thing the law has told us not to do. And yet in spite of that God sent Jesus Christ into the world to be a saviour for sinners who sinned the more. Grace abounded. Where sin abounded, grace abounded. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And Paul seems to be saying, well, the more we sin, the more God's grace is shown. Well, yes. So are you saying then, that I can now be a Christian and sin and get away with it, and the more I sin, the more wonderful people say God's grace is? Ah, you're thinking the right way if you think that. You're wrong, but you're thinking the right way. And Paul will deal with that very issue in chapter 6. But we're not going to go into chapter 6 today. just want to come back and emphasise a few points. Firstly, all of us are born sinners. Whether We're young or old, we're born sinners, we are sinners. David acknowledges that in Psalm 51 verse 5 he said in sin did my mother conceive me if you look at it he says even a bit more than that he spells it out in more graphic detail not that he was a good little boy it's not because of any wickedness in his mother although his mother was a sinner but he says behold I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me he's talking about his own state at his birth as a sinner do you see yourself as that having seen yourself as a sinner as I hope that you do who are you in are you in Adam or are you in Christ is it for you sin condemnation and death in Adam or in Christ obedience righteousness and life. Which side are you on? If you are on the left hand side, if you are in Adam, there is only one way to get across to the other side and one way only. There is only one way you can escape sin, condemnation and death and that is through the salvation of God. You can receive God's righteousness through regeneration, conversion and trusting in Jesus Christ and knowing God's grace. it's because of these things that you and I even thousands of years after the event despite the fact that millions have been saved in the meantime and still have all the merits and all the benefits of the death of Christ It's an amazing thing that the grace of God is so great in spite of our sin yet His grace abounds all the more. And we can give thanks to God because of it. But let us be sure. That we know. And experience God's grace. In our own hearts. And we know that we are in Christ. And not in Adam.